0: Our scripture is Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Beginning our studies in the seventh commandment, marriage. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. even as the Lord the Church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the Church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. The Seventh Commandment declares, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and its purpose is very obviously to protect marriage. It is important, therefore, to understand the significance of marriage before we deal with the specific laws governing its violation. We have marriage first defined for us in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. But in Genesis, marriage is defined in relationship to man. First of all, we need to study it in relationship to God. And hence, our concern this week is with the Ephesian passage and next week with Genesis. Marriage clearly is, according to scripture, of this earth. As our Lord said, there is no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. But it still has reference to and is governed by God as are all things. God being the creator and the maker of all things, all things are absolutely subject to his law. In order to understand marriage, in fact, everything, we must begin with verse 21, which asserts a general principle, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. We have here a general principle of subjection affirmed. Calvin commented on this verse, and I quote, God has bound us so strongly to each other that no man ought to endeavor to avoid subjection, and where love reigns, mutual services will be rendered. I do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is held for the service of the community. It is highly proper that all should be exhorted to be subject to each other in their turn, unquote. Charles Hodge affirmed the same thing and said that the Apostle requires mutual obedience as a Christian duty. And under this head, St. Paul, in this chapter and the next, discusses not only the relationship of husbands and wives, but of parents and children, of masters and servants, of everyone, of subjects in a government and rulers. In other words, we have a general principle asserted here. But in every age, and especially in our day, men have been in revolt against the necessity of submission. And they have dreamed of autonomous power, of kicking over the traces, as it were, of all authority, and being independent of all men. A very interesting passage from the memoirs of the Duke of Gramot cites a discussion on this same point with the young Louis XIV. And I quote, Louis, I have just been reading a book with which I am delighted. Gramot, what is that, sire? Louis, Calcandile, it pleases me to find in it arbitrary power in the hands of one man everything being done by him or by his orders, he rendering an account of his acts to no man and obeyed blindly by all his subjects without exception. Such boundless power is the closest approach to that of God. What do you think, Bramo? Ramo, I am pleased that your majesty has taken to reading. But I would ask if he has read the whole of Calcandile. Louis, no, only the preface. Ramo, well then, let your majesty read the book through. And when he has finished it, see how many Turkish emperors died in their beds, and how many came to a violent end. In Cal- Calcandil one finds ample proof that a prince who can do whatever he pleases should never be such a fool as to do so. Gramot's observations, of course, were to the point, but this dream of absolute power being like God as Louis XIV very clearly saw it, is now the popular dream. It is, in fact, the dream of the New Left, of anarchism, every man his own God. And so today, the idea of submission to authority is, in particular, despised. And we are again and again told by intellectuals and by prominent leaders of youth, as well as politicians, that we are duty-bound to violate any law we differ with. In other words, there is no law save our own will. However... This ideal of anarchism is an impossibility. Men are interdependent one upon another. But the general principle of subjection, as here given in Scripture, and of service, is rooted in far more than man's interdependence. It is grounded in a theocratic faith, that is, that ultimately all men are under God and subject to his word and to his law order. Men are to be in subjection, in submission, one to another, in mutual service, not because the needs of humanity require it, but in fear of God and in an obedience to His law word. The human interdependence exists because of a prior dependence upon God. Because man is not God, man is a subject. Primarily and essentially to God and to others in the Lord only. Where men reject the idea of submission to authority and to God and assert their autonomy, they do not thereby gain independence. This rejection of God's authority and the assertion of man's total independence, of course, was the essence of Marxism, as well as of anarchism. And the revolution of 1917, as well as the French Revolution, had at their heart this assertion of man's total independence of God and man. But, on the contrary, it led to a greater subjection by man to men. This subjection, however, was now without the restraint of the fear of God and his law. And so, every attempt to destroy due submission to authority brings about a total submission to lawlessness and to tyranny. The fact about biblical submission is that it is always limited, always under law. It is a constitutional submission. That is, a husband is to be obeyed in everything we are told insofar as he is in the Lord. In other words, he cannot command his wife to sin. Parents, rulers, all have a limited authority. Their authority is at all times strictly limited by the word of God and is subject to God. God's prior lordship governs and conditions all situations and all authorities. To deny the biblical principle of subjection, of submission, is to open the door to tyranny. Because there will be subjection. It is inescapable. Consider, for example, the kind of world that has prevailed over and over again in history and will prevail again when biblical principles of authority are denied. Where do women come out? You had, of course, feminism in the Roman Empire and women fought for and won the right to do as they please and to be independent of all authority denying that anyone had the right to tell them anything least of all their husbands what was the consequence well the consequence was a lawless empire ultimately in which every kind of authority was broken the authority of women over their children the authority of the state over its subjects, of the police over criminals. And women ended up under greater subjection because now it was the subjection of brute force, of total lawlessness, of no safety at all. And so they lost. They lost everything. Thus, in terms of scripture, wives are not placed in bondage by biblical law, but are rather established in liberty and security, in the liberty and security of a God-ordained relationship and a God-ordained law order, where the husband under God exercises his authority for the welfare of his household and where the wife exercises her authority under God for the total welfare of the family. But without biblical faith, there is no law order. There is anarchy, and everyone suffers, especially the weaker, especially women. Without biblical faith, what happens? Marriage is soon reduced to feeling. And as a result, where feeling prevails, there is very little security. As an indication of this, a very revealing little book of poems written some years ago by a woman, Mary Carolyn Davies, has a poem entitled A Marriage, in which she writes, took my name and took my pride, left me not much else beside but the feeling that ensures sort of joy at being yours. Property. That's what it meant. Property, and we content. Now you're gone. Can I be anything but property? In other words, a relationship such as hers that had nothing but feelings, Ended with the feeling and left her with nothing. So that she could write, Here is a woman, they'll say to all men, A little soiled by living, A little soiled by loving, A little flecked, a little specked, Oh, they are forgiving. To you who did the wrong. But still of me, like cabbage in a market, Critically, they'll say not quite as fresh as she should be. In a world of feeling, what else is there? Only feeling prevails. Romantic feelings, mutual exploitation, and then self-pity becomes the lot of those who reduce the man-woman relationship to one of anarchic liberty. The biblical principle of subjection Is our ground of liberty and security as men and as women because it creates a society in which because there is authority there is also liberty the modern perspective opposes liberty and authority but in terms of the biblical perspective they are inseparable deny authority and you deny liberty Affirm authority and you have affirmed liberty, that is, if it is God's authority, authority under God and restrained and controlled and governed by God's law work. The biblical principle of authority, moreover, is hierarchical, in that there are classes and levels of authority. That is, rulers have their authority but it is strictly limited. Teachers have their authority but it is limited. Employers, husbands, wives all have their place, their station and the hierarchy of authority but each limited by God's law. The husband, we are told, is The head of his wife, even as Christ, is the head of the church. For the husband is the head of the wife, St. Paul said, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands, their own husbands, in everything. Himself. Now what is clearly stated here is that the love of the wife is shown by submission. The love of the husband is shown by service, self-sacrificing service for the welfare of the family. And so there is clearly a principle of subjection affirmed here that rests ultimately on a chain of authority going back to Christ who is the pattern in his relationship to the church so that all authorities are Christ-centered and are types of Christ and the husband is compared to Christ who gave himself for his church that he might present it spotless and blameless unto God. One of the sad facts about this passage is that when we go to commentaries to understand it, we find that, by and large, they miss the point. For example, Bishop Barry of the Church of England, a century ago, wrote in an otherwise excellent commentary, and I quote, The subjection of the Church of Christ is a free subjection arising out of faith in His absolute wisdom and goodness, and of love for its unspeakable love. Hence, we gather that the subordination of the wife is not that of the slave by compulsion and fear, but one which arises from and preserves freedom. Next, that it can exist or at any rate can endure only on condition of superior wisdom and goodness and love in the husband. Thirdly, that while it is like a higher subordination in kind, it cannot be equally perfect in degree. Well it is, a, it is real in everything, it can be absolute in nothing. The antitype is, as usual, greater than the type. Unquote. Now there are some good points here that Bishop Berry has made, but there are some highly ridiculous ones. In other words, the wife is only to obey if the husband is smarter than her. Well, this is not always the case, and I would say in a good percentage of marriages it is definitely not the case. Does that give her the right to be independent? And is it like, and he says, the obedience of the church is an entirely free and voluntary thing? Well, now, what we are talking about here is law. The church is, by the law of God, required... To obey Christ as its head. And the husband is clearly the law authority in the family, and the wife is required by law to obey him. It is, ju- is it just when she feels like it? And do we obey Christ only when we have a mind to do so? Certainly, it's not a slave relationship. But the alternative to slavery is not anarchy. There is such a thing as law. And the tragic fact is that Bishop Barry and most commentators discuss law without ever mentioning the fact that it is law. Is it any wonder that the church is in a mess today? When what is clearly given as law is never cited as law. It is reduced to an emotional response that is blasphemy. The whole universe is one of submission to law, to authority. And the fulfillment of each and every aspect is to discharge its duties in terms of law and its place under law. And a world without submission to law and to authority under law lawless force would prevail and all of us would suffer the world of God's law is man's true liberty only when we begin with the fact of marriage as law and the relationship of man and woman as one under law for both of them that we can talk about free consent as a necessary but secondary aspect. And what are the marriage vows about? They are, of course, voluntary. But they are an acceptance and an affirmation of the fact of law. The very fact that they are called vows is revelatory they are vows unto God whereby God's law order is invoked both in its promises of blessing and in its promises of judgment and curse for violation now the alternative to submission is not freedom it is exploitation as we have already pointed out, there is no freedom in anarchy. The purpose of submission is not to degrade men to those who are over them, nor to degrade women in marriage, or to degrade anyone who is under authority, and we are all under authority, but to bring to them their best prosperity and peace under God's order in a world of submission the submission of a man or a woman to their due authority is not in isolation or in a vacuum it is set in the context of a law-abiding society where those in authority use their authority for service and those who submit do it knowing that this is their peace and their security an interdependence and a service prevails in such a world but in a world of moral anarchism neither submission to authority nor service which is a form of submission exists a husband or a father who uses his authority and his income wisely to further the welfare of the entire family Is serving the welfare of all thereby, and he is submitting his authority to their welfare. But in anarchism, every man serves himself only and seeks to exploit all others. Authority and law are things of the spirit. Where they prevail, there is little policing necessary. For example, in India today, among the Hindus, practically no policing is necessary to enforce vegetarianism. Why? Because it is a religious principle in which they all believe. We, of course, do not accept it. And therefore, if vegetarianism were required of Americans, there would not be enough police to enforce it. Authority and submission are things of the Spirit. And where you have, as a part of the faith of a people, a belief in God's authority, then there is submission to authority. Some months ago I cited the fact that in England, centuries ago, at one time it was impossible for anyone to leave their house in safety, and yet within a few generations it could be said that a virgin on horseback with a sack of gold could cross from one end of England to the other in safety. what was the difference the difference was that now there was not only policing but that there was a common faith that undergirded the whole of society else how could a woman out of sight of the police with a sack of gold be safe but once there was a faith that undergirded the whole order That faith was the primary policing. And it is because today that primary policing of a common faith has been systematically destroyed. that it would be very difficult even by doubling our police forces or changing the complexion of the Supreme Court to do more than temporarily halt the decay of law and order humanism today is denying the foundations of law for a purely relative purely personal consideration a personal outlook is impersonal in its view of other people that is if your only criterion for judging things is yourself personal then you are impersonal in your use of other people because there is nothing outside of yourself that matters. And as a result, an externalism prevails wherever humanism flourishes. And so it is today that the basic qualities men desire in a woman are purely external. And similarly, the qualities... Women increasingly desire of men. And this has happened again and again in society. This externalism replacing God's law order, an externalism that seeks to exploit people. For example, Sir Thomas More, now supposedly a saint of the Catholic Church, who was actually a militant humanist, in his book *Utopia*, in which he portrayed an ideal communistic society, said that before marriage, men should have the right to examine, in the nude, their prospective bride before they said yes or no to her. When Sir William Roper, who was showing interest in both of Sir Thomas More's daughters, said well why not practice what you preach sir thomas moore took him into the bedroom where the two girls were sleeping and whipped off the blankets and the girls night dresses were up under their elbows the girls when they were awakened by the light rolled over and sir william roper says i've seen both sides and he slapped one of them on the backside and said i'll have her Now, the only thing we can call this, whether Sir Thomas is now an official saint or not, is the epitome of coarseness and externalism. And this is precisely what prevails when the primacy of the Spirit is destroyed, when God's law, order, and authority, which are things of the Spirit, are eroded. Marriage, we are told here, is a type of Christ. In Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, according to James Moffat's translation, we read, For this reason then I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name and nature. The Father of all families can also be rendered... The father of all fatherhoods so that all fatherhoods are a type of Christ and every family in heaven and earth derives its name and nature from God. Now what St. Paul is saying in the third chapter is that the name and nature of all earthly relationships derives from the triune God that is Apart from God, there is no law, no society, no relationship, no justice, no structure, no design, no meaning. So that what is hell? It is just bare existence in total isolation. There is no community in hell. Nothing. No relationship between person and person in hell. Because... God, having been denied, who is the father of all fatherhoods, from whom every relationship derives its name and nature, to deny God is ultimately to deny all law, all society, every possible relationship. Hell has none of these things. It is total isolation. This typology of marriage, whereby... Marriage is compared to the relationship of Christ and the Church, therefore, says that the marriage relationship sets forth something of that which in its original comes from the triune God and from his redemptive purpose in Christ and the Church, that the source of all relationship and its law structure comes from God. Therefore, it is that Husband and wife shall be one flesh, not an identity of substance, but a community of life. And therefore, this which is called a great mystery has reference to this, the primacy of God as the source of all relationship and of all community. And therefore, of all authority. Scripture says emphatically, Saint Paul speaking, for example, in his epistle to Titus to Timothy, that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. But what we must recognize that men are mediators not between God and man, but between men and men. That God mediates his law order through men. Thus, every teacher mediates an order to the pupils in his classroom. Every employer mediates an order to those working under him. Every government mediates an aspect of God's law order to its citizens. Every father, every husband mediates God's law order to those under him as covenantal instruments. God's law order not only governs, therefore, our every relation, but is the ground and happiness and prosperity of the whole of our lives. And we continually, as we submit to authority and as we exercise due authority, are mediating God's law order to those Around us. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto Thee for this Thy word. We thank Thee that Thy law word speaks plainly, and that our liberty is grounded in Thy law order and authority make us ever mindful of our responsibilities and our authority, that day by day we may exercise all due authority under thee and to thy praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes.
1: Bible. And yet, I, to about the authority. I remember when Moses was represented in a way it happens to be represented by his father-in-law because he was making all the judgments of his right. life. And his father-in-law said, Don't no, keep them. Teach them from the mind So I thought not but maybe just a little bit further. I, I read in Daniel, where the uh, Israelites came to Daniel and said, you a king, mm-hmm. and he, and, uh, uh, he says, they do, not, they do not betray you or reject you, but they reject me. Yeah. And he goes through the whole, uh, a whole list of what a king would do to them. They are about and their children and their children. It's for each man who is captive over all and people who have sent them to war and offering home services. And as you read it for a while, I realize, I'm not proud of it, but as I read it for a while, I feel sometimes the Lord is saying that each man follows my law and that there need not be a government, but my government. Do
0: you me? Not quite, no. In the passage with regard to Jethro and Moses, Moses was trying to carry on the whole province of the courts, and what Jethro said and God confirmed was that it should be progressively decentralized, yes, and shared, but it was all authority under God and subject to his kingship. Now, the essence of the rejection of Samuel was that they were rejecting God as the king and the lawgiver of the nation for a man. But while certainly we are to grow in responsibility, and to grow in responsibility means to grow in authority, always it is to be subject to all to authority, and there is always uh Authority in various realms ordained by God, church, state, family, vocation, school, and so on. So that these authorities are never dispensed with, they are strengthened as people become more responsible. Let me emphasize that point again. Responsibility means growth in authority. And the more responsible we become, the greater the authority with which we exercise our calling and our place, our appointed place. Yes. Yes. Is there a concept of equality, under God? equality is a modern term, basically, and I think it's best for us to bypass the word entirely because the word equality is a mathematical term. Two plus two equals four. Both sides of an equation are identical. Now, equality as a mathematical term has reference to abstractions. In other words, it has reference, say, to uh, things that have been uh, reduced to a common size. For example, you cannot say two trees are equal to two trees, but you can say two two-by-fours are equal to two two-by-fours. But you cannot use the equality sign where you're dealing with people, because you're not dealing with an abstraction or something that has been cut to measurement. It's been a part of the curse of our modern world that we have taken terms out of science and applied them, this is sociology, to human relations. But because science deals with precise measurements and abstractions and things like broad feet and uh, other things, it cannot be applied to the human scene. So the sooner we kick... Sociology out of the window and all this scientific terminology out of human relationships, the better off we are. Then we won't talk about equality and inequality and other things that have reference to a domain that does not apply to us. Yes. Yes, of course. Mary Baker Eddy was first of all a feminist, and therefore, if uh, she resented the whole idea of God being referred to as Father, and second, she coined the Father-Mother-God phrase when, uh, as in reality, God was neither Father or Mother for her. God was simply impersonal cosmic mind so it represented not only blasphemy but inconsistency in terms of our own thinking our time is limited but and there are a few things I'd like to uh, share with you I referred I believe last week to the fact of one college Marshall and Franklin where the colored students demanded that final examinations be canceled Uh, they felt that it was unfair because uh, of course obviously they would not do well and so they demanded that they be allowed to grade themselves and I won't read all of it, uh, but they did uh, besiege the building and cooped up the instructors and so on. They met with President Keith Spaulding, who said the school would honor the instructor's decision. The instructors gave in. The instructors expressed deep regret over the circumstances under which we were forced to deliberate. They said they also regretted that the questions and demands raised by the black students had not been aired sooner. That's what happens in a world without authority. I referred also last week to the fact of change as basic education. That's the only thing that they believe in today. And a week ago Saturday, the paper had today's youth. The word is change, a long article. This is the only thing they teach. Since they believe in no absolutes, what can the schools teach today? Nothing but change, which means revolution. Along the same lines, I think it is interesting to see the demands by the retail clerks against the supermarkets now, uh, in case you missed this over the holidays. The demands Include, among original union prop, uh, proposals according to the FEC are paid auto insurance for teenagers in clerks' families, paid legal service for private litigation, three months vacation a year with pay to train for second careers, Five weeks vacation with pay and doubling of present pension rates at the same time we've had a lot in the papers the last week or two about the incident at Berkeley and all of the reports have been dishonest in that they have not presented the real demands of the students now the students as you know ...demanded that a portion of the university's property at Berkeley... ...be made into a people's park. They moved in and planted some trees... ...and then the university put up a chain-link fence around it. Now, of course, the president has offered to give at least half of that... ...to the students for a people's park. Now, this paper which was published by the students at Berkeley and distributed on every state college campus throughout the state of California. This is what the strike was about, which most of the students participated in across the state. These are their demands. We demand and we will fight for People's Park Back to the people. All troops out of Vietnam, the black ghettos in Berkeley, amnesty to all political prisoners, free Huey, bring back Eldridge, and then in larger letters, the big demands, build parks everywhere, all fences down, the land belongs to the people, all institutions to the people, all wealth to all the people. Now, that, of course, is total communism. But this has not been in any papers, and yet this paper published by the students there has been truckloaded to every campus, and the majority of the students on almost every campus have gone along with it in the student strike. So don't let anyone tell you that the students, by and large, are not in favor of it the majority of them went along with those demands and it's no wonder in view of what they've been taught over the years in the public schools change is the only law when professors of education say we cannot know what the world will be like ten years from now so why teach the children a lot of useless facts but teach them the fact of continual change or revolution what else are we going to get? One final, somewhat more humorous note. Pfeiffer, Jules Pfeiffer, in his cartoon strip, which is usually very much to the left, this time has a picture of a long-haired, long-moustached student saying, I occupy buildings, raid files, scream obscenities, throw rocks, and call cops pigs in an attempt to humanize this brutalized society. With that note, we can adjourn.